don't take their behaviors and their speech abilities and their motor skills at face value. Um, motor skills are not related to intelligence, neither is the ability to produce speech. So students are often like have normal or above average intelligence, but have really difficult, uh, a really difficult time with motor skills. Can you imagine being like really smart, but everybody looks at you and looks at the way you move and the way you approximate speech and they talk to you like you're a baby when you're like 12 years old, you know? So it, this presuming competence is really just, there's a lot that goes into it, but the main advice is talk to students in an age appropriate way, no matter what age they are, and then expect that they understand you. I think we're, as teachers, we're always looking for them to not understand. <laughs> and so if you look at them, it, you speak in an age appropriate way, you deliver developmentally appropriate information, they'd probably do understand you, even if they're not able to express that to you in a way that you understand. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I will be speaking with Selena Pistoresi. Selena Pistoresi is the founder of Cultivate Music Studio in Santa Clara, California, as well as Notable Music Education, a platform aimed at giving teachers concrete, proven strategies to effectively teach piano to students with special needs. She has worked as the program coordinator and music specialist at a nonprofit inclusion school where she has taught private and group music classes to children with a wide range of special needs. She's a licensed music garden instructor and offers the first and only music garden classes available in the South San Francisco Bay Area. Additionally, she is the only certified occupational octaves piano instructor in California and works extensively with individuals with a wide range of special needs, as well as those who are typically mainstreamed and those who are gifted. She earned a BA in psychology and music from Santa Clara University. Selena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Today, we're going to talk about teaching neurodiverse students. So I have to admit, this is one of those terms that I've kind of heard in the ether for a while, but I didn't really have a formal definition of what that word meant until I explored your work a bit more. Can you define neurodiverse and clarify which types of learners fall into this category? And also, can you talk about why you prefer the term neurodiverse over some of the other phrases that we've all in the teaching world heard thrown out over the years to describe these students? Yeah, so... I just want to be clear. I definitely did not make up the word neurodiversity, (laughs) but um, I do use it all the time. I think that the word is attributed to an autistic advocate, Judy Singer, in the late 80s or the early 90s. Um, But I'll tell you what neurodiversity means and then how it comes into play as far as other terms that are in use. So neurodiversity is, is simply the idea that there is diversity of human brains and minds. So because there's there's infinite variation in cognition and brain function within humans, it's not like an opinion or a perspective. It's just a fact, like there is diversity in brains, okay? Um, and so neurodiversity can cover what is referred to as like neurotypical brains, as well as a bunch of neurological differences that include autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, Tourette syndrome, and some others. It's I, I don't know if there's like an official neurodiversity, neurodiversity board that decides like which conditions are covered, but uh, those are the ones that I typically hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so people with one or more of those conditions are often referred to as neurodivergent because they diverge from what you might refer to as the norm of brain functioning. So um, of course, that's viewed through kind of a neurotypical lens, though. Uh, so, so we have neurodiversity, which is the large umbrella term. 
referring to all, all the possibilities. And then we have neurodivergent and neurotypical, which get a little more specific as far as referring to particular conditions. And so there's also a neurodiversity movement. So that goes beyond just the like biological descriptive term. It's basically the idea that that brain differences are normal and that symptoms and behaviors of people who are not neurotypical, like autistic people, ADHD, things like that, um, are within the spectrum of normal human behaviors. So it's in it's this idea that like what is normal, quote normal for humans, constitutes a big range of behaviors. Now, that's really important because conditions like autism and ADHD have historically been viewed as diseases or disorders um, that we need to find a cure for, and um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into research on that. And but there's no like blood test or brain scan that's used for example, to, to diagnose autism. So um, it's kind of a subjective thing that's diagnosed when symptoms meet this criteria um, in the DSM, if you know what that is. Yeah. But yeah. And maybe in psychology <laughs> <So>. too. <laughs> yes. Okay. There you go. So so it, it is subjective and open to interpretation um, and of course, typically made up by neurotypical people. So mm. um, there's a long history of, of supposedly therapeutic interventions that were focused on making I talk about autism a lot, so I'll just say making autistic people look less autistic. I'm sorry, can you clarify what you mean by look less autistic? Yes, I can. Great question. So um, autistic people can sometimes have a way of moving in the world that looks different from neurotypical people. Like Mm -hmm. you might see them clapping their hands or they might have like motor challenges or differences. They might have speech differences. And so it was kind of um, when autism started to be described at first, there was this idea like that it was a problem and then we need to like teach them how to not look autistic. So like get rid of the the ways the stimming and the ways that they move, you know, sit quietly, keep your hands still, don't talk like that, this, this kind of stuff. And I will say there's a huge movement away from that now. Um, there is a little bit of it still going on, but like, it's this idea, like is autism this terrible disease that's out to get your children or is yeah. it a, a normal brain difference? Just divergent, but that doesn't right. make it less desirable. Huh. Okay, um, well today I want to talk about teaching uh, piano to these students. Um, So there's a lot of clips, well, not a lot, but a few clips of you working with these students. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of your students fall under the banner of what we would call neurodivergent, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. Um, So um, I watched a few of these clips of you teaching these students, and my immediate reaction was, of course, it was very impressive, and I thought it was great that you did it, but my immediate reaction was, I don't know if at least personally, I would have the stamina to teach lessons like that for many hours a day the way you do. But So that was my initial reaction. But then as I kind of looked through more of your resources and tips, I realized that I think why a lot of teachers might find it exhausting to teach these students is because they don't really like in a normal music training program, they don't learn tools for how to teach these students effectively. And so in your videos, you seem very at ease, which is probably the result of being knowledgeable and confident about how to serve these students. So can you talk about why there tends to be a somewhat limited pool of piano teachers who are knowledgeable about how to teach neurodiverse students and how you're working to correct that? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually get that a lot from people like, you must be so patient or that looks so difficult. And (laughs) I will say I I'm not a patient person <laughs> and it, it's only difficult if you're coming at it from more like of a deficits based lens, I guess. Um, and so like when I started in the field, I was super exhausted all the time, not because of well, really just cause I was like kind of fighting against the nature of my students and not really understanding the, the, the normal and natural differences that they had. And so 
I think there's a, a relatively small number of teachers who are knowledgeable or feel equipped to work with neurodivergent students mm-hmm. because the world of like pedagogy hasn't really known what to do with these students. Right. Right. And like, at least in a definitive way, and I, I'm not speaking for everyone, there's people out here doing this work, but um, so, you know, piano teachers typically grow up, they get, they have their traditional piano lessons, they go to maybe some pedagogy classes and then they like teach what they, how they've been taught. And um, this like rigorous classical traditional education is like geared towards kids who sit down and follow directions. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I think like there's just not a lot of exposure or awareness out there about what, what learning can look like. So there's just like this gap in knowledge, I think. And again, there are other people out here doing this work and I, but there are so many students who want to learn and, mm-hmm. and so many teachers who could teach them. They just don't know yet that they can teach them. So, so I my what I'm doing with it is I'm on social media. I'm trying to give away as much free information as possible. Like, Hey, this quick switch will help you. Um, I got an email list. I'm creating courses for teachers that want to go deeper, just, um, sharing as much experience as I can, you know? Great. And I will link to all of these resources um, in the show notes. Uh, So I do want to talk about some of the specific ideas and tips that you discuss in your resources. Uh, One topic that I've seen you speak a lot about is creating a sensory-friendly learning environment. And this can affect everything from how the books are arranged to even what type of clothing the teacher wears. Uh, Can you talk about what a healthy environment can look like for a student with sensory sensitivity? Yeah. So so students can have... um, Sensory sensitivity, as you said, like they're extra sensitive to certain input, like smells or sounds or vision or, you know, sights. They can also be hyposensitive. So they could be not quite sensitive enough. To I'm so sorry input. to interrupt. Can I ask a possibly yeah. dumb question? When you no, say no. they're not sensitive enough, yeah. would that mean like the room is is on fire and they don't notice? What, what does that right. mean, yeah, not so, sensitive yes. enough? Sometimes um, students have uh, trouble knowing what's going on inside their bodies. They don't feel like bodily sensations. Some students don't oh, feel like pain. pain or something. Yeah. Or oh. like having to go to the bathroom or, oh. or pressure. So if you think about it, we are all or, like neurotypical people with like, uh, regulated sensory systems are walking around. We feel the pressure of the atmosphere. We feel clothes on our arms and our, you know, our bodies. And it's like, we don't know this, but it's comforting to us that we feel that pressure. And when you don't have that, it's really disconcerting. So some students like need input. And so you'll see students like wanting to like do rough kind of crashy play or wrestling or Uh, like seeking, making sounds, um, you know, waving their hands in front of their face, like trying to get to get to that level to feel any kind of sensory stimulation. Right. So it's not just like extra sensitivity. It can be totally and and under sensitivity can look like misbehaving. Like Hmm. why is this kid, you know, crashing into the walls, (laughs) but they need sensation. Sometimes that's the reason why. So I'll say that, you know, those can be the the things going on. So it's important Mm -hmm. to look out for that. If your student seems really sensory seeking, give them sensations, like let them bounce on the ball or give them, you know, fidgets and things like that. Um, And I will say like, there's a lot of things you can do to make your space, whether it's online or in person, um, sensory friendly, you can totally, you know, minimize clutter in the room, try to cover, like, try not to just have random books spilling out everywhere. Basically, the more things that there are competing for a student's attention or bombarding them, bombarding their senses, then, you know, the less likely they are to be able to concentrate. But I will also say that sensory isn't like the ultimate answer. It's not like if you suddenly make your room perfectly sensory friendly, the kid will, you know, 
drive no matter what. So Okay, then yeah. also on the topic of sensory stimulation, I want to talk about something that I learned from your resources that I did not know. Um, and this is something you touched on earlier in the interview when you talked about how previously with autism, uh, people would try to move them away from autistic, quote unquote, autistic mm -hmm. behaviors towards quote unquote, normal behaviors. And some of these behaviors are what you call dysregulated behaviors. So stimming, uh, waving their hands, shaking their bodies. So as teachers, we might be tempted to fall into the same trap as the previous DSM writers that you were describing, um, where we would want to discourage these behaviors and we would interpret them as signs of losing focus. But in a lot of your resources, you talk about how these behaviors are actually healthy, adaptive mechanisms. Uh, so what is going on when students are behaving this way? And how should teachers react when they're confronted with those behaviors in their lessons? Yeah, so I want to clarify that if I have said that they're dysregulated behaviors, I don't, I didn't quite mean that, but they are regulatory behaviors or they can okay. be. So I, no, it's okay. I, I'm glad that you brought this up. So um, students definitely do and can stim when they are dysregulated, but they also might stim just because it feels good or like to express that they're happy. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean like bad, <laughs> but um, yes, stimming, which is short for like self-stimulatory. Um, again, kind of coming back to that oversensitivity or undersensitivity, it, students can do it for both reasons. They feel overwhelmed. They need to like shake out the overwhelm or, you know, they feel underwhelmed or um, understimulated and they need to give themselves stimulation. So it can definitely um, be a sign that maybe what you're doing is overwhelming to your student. Um, it's not something that should make you, you know, stop whatever you're doing. And we should definitely not try to tell we shouldn't tell students to stop stimming. Right. We should always allow stimming unless it's uh, hurting themselves or someone else, which I, I haven't really seen that, but I suppose it could happen. So um, like, if you think about it, we all stim, like you probably, I don't know, bit your nails while you're nervous or shake your leg or mm -hmm. something. And so it's just something that a lot of students need to do in order to concentrate. I've, there are a lot of autistic adults and speaking autistic people and non-speaking autistic people who learn to type to communicate um, who have told us that, you know, they need to stim to, to be able to pay attention, which is different than what we typically think of as like traditional piano teachers. If this kid is fidgeting and bouncing around and not looking at me, they're not paying attention, but that's not the case. In fact, usually the opposite is the case. <laughs> so um, I always say, you know, allow stimming. If it's something that you feel interferes with piano learning, like I had a student who stimmed by lifting up her hand to her eye and then shaking it a lot. And she did this every 10 seconds or so which of course you need your hands to play piano. <laughs> so um, when I first started working with her, I was like, oh man, okay. Uh, but that's okay. It doesn't really matter if a student needs to pick their hand up and stim every 10 seconds. It's fine. Um, so also I find that a lot of times as a student gets used to you and gets used to playing piano, the stimming kind of um, doesn't happen as often, or maybe they might do it like in smaller chunks of time, like on break time or something. So allow it. That's my short answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and just to be sure I'm clear, when you say allow it, I understand how maybe there'll have to be some minimal adjustments made if it's the case you're describing where the student puts their hands in the air every 10 seconds. But in other cases, if it doesn't actively interfere with the lesson process, you would recommend teachers just continue teaching yeah, the same way they would teaching. if they weren't stimming. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Uh, you can totally talk to a student while they're stimming. I have students mm -hmm. that stim by singing a song while they're playing the piano they're singing a different yeah, song i've had that in playing. my studio also yeah yeah so it's just they can do it i and I've, I've even had some parents be like they shouldn't be singing while they're playing and i'm like i don't care they're still playing perfectly so <laughs> that's very yeah. good advice 
I had another question related yeah. to senses, and this is about multisensory learning. Stereotypically, teachers always try to teach concepts from as many angles as possible, including appealing to multiple senses. However, for some neurodivergent students, when working on written pieces and where the central objective is to help them learn to read music, you do not advocate oral teaching in the sense of humming the goal note or saying the letter name. Can you discuss why this approach could, in some cases, hold these students back? Yeah. So I want to be clear that I, I think ear training is a really good thing. Like unequivocally <laughs> playing piano by ear is not a bad thing. I just see a lot of teachers really quick to write off a student as like just an auditory learner and then not even attempt to teach sight reading. Or maybe they don't know exactly what to do with a student or can't tell if they understand. So they just resort to, to teaching by ear. So um, I will say that it seems like um, there's research being done on this, but it's kind of hard to get exact numbers that um, there's a higher rate of perfect pitch in um, autistic people, some some people with ADHD and some other conditions. So, um, the, and I will say those kinds of students tend to find their way to piano lessons because they're drawn to music and the parents notice that and they're like, hey, my kid's musical. So you might run into a lot of students who are, for example, autistic and have perfect pitch. And you might not be able to tell they have perfect pitch at first because they might not speak or they might uh, not have control over their motor skills to be able to like answer you back in like a test for perfect pitch you know so I always assume when I meet a student especially autistic and non-speaking that they have perfect pitch and now if a student and if they prove otherwise eventually that's fine and it doesn't we didn't ruin them <laughs> but um if a student has perfect pitch there and this is like neurotypical students too their ear will always overpower their eyes when it comes to music it's just like an adaptive thing to do. Your brain goes with the easiest thing. And so they'll hear something and they'll remember it forever. This is how people with perfect pitch are able to fake their way through piano lessons for years. Like my teacher thinks I can read notes, but I can't because she plays it for me once and I remember. So um, when students with perfect pitch also have motor challenges, they will just, they'll, they'll hear something and then they'll try to make it happen at any cost or their motor skills won't really let them play in the way that they want to. But either way, we can use... So we want to make sure that we're pairing their perfect pitch ear with some kind of visual input from the beginning. Like if, if you play a C and then you tell them this is C and this is the letter C on the page, this is what C looks like, then they'll, they'll make that connection. They'll kind of cement that connection between their ear and their eye a lot sooner. And I've had this... I've seen this a lot with students who have perfect pitch who are taught only by ear at first. And then teachers are like, oh, well, I'll just introduce note reading later and students are like they might have all kinds of wonky technique because they've just been like trying to make the notes happen no matter what and they also um just have such a hard time reading they why, why would they read now they've been doing this by ear forever right. so i just say like default to although i wouldn't advocate this with all students but a lot of times with neurodivergent students default to thinking they probably have perfect pitch or they might have perfect pitch and then give them visual input right away that pairs with that I also think some of this shows why terms like disability or developmentally delayed don't paint the full picture, because what you're describing is the opposite of that. It's a developmental Gift. benefit. Superpower. Uh, I'd like to turn to note reading next. Yeah. There's a never-ending debate in the piano teacher community that people are always going on and on about in these Facebook groups about being rooted to C position versus a more multi-key approach. In your milestone method, you stay in C position for kind of a while, and you've discussed the importance of anchoring to C position for students with special needs. Can you talk about how for neurodivergent students, teachers might want to anchor them to C position a bit longer than they would for neurotypical students? Yeah, so 
I am well aware of the debate. <laughs> I generally tend to agree that it's not good for students to be stuck in C position for a long time. Um, but when we're talking, that's primarily for neurotypical students. When we're talking about some neurodivergent students, um, I think it's really important for them to have an anchor and something that they can keep coming back to. So if you think about if you have motor ch skills challenges, if you can't make your thumb play a key when you want it to, you do not need to be worrying about like the letters on the page, the notes on the page, translating them to which key on the 88 keys of the piano do I need to go to and then isolate fingers. It's just a whole thing. It's too many skills at once. So keeping them in one, one hand position is just an anchor. And then they get that exposure to um, practice isolating fingers over and over again. And then eventually, you know, they move, of course they move to different positions and then mm -hmm. no positions. I've never had a student not be able to do that because they started in C position. I will say like, as far as developing the best, most beautiful, healthy technique, it could, I don't know, delay that. But with students with, with really intense motor challenges, we're not really looking for the absolute best technique right away. We're just mm -hmm. trying to get them to make cool sounds. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, that's also why I, I know this is not quite an answer to your question, but that's also why I advocate for using letters in the beginning instead of notes or finger numbers. That's an idea that I got from Susan Ranser, who's a music therapist in the Bay Area. Um, the progression of the milestone method is based on the way that she scaffolds information with her students. But I think it's really important to use letters because, again, when it's already so hard to isolate your fingers or make your fingers obey your brain, you don't need the extra step of translating note symbols or even finger numbers. Like saying, take your finger one and play C is 200% more information to process than just play your C finger. Yeah. I so, saw one... Th um Thing that you wrote where you and initially it said you referred to students thumbs as c fingers yeah like with the right hand uh -huh. in c position yeah right. again it's it's why give them an extra piece of information when things are already mm -hmm. so hard um i'm not going to say that no student can comprehend that maybe some can but this right. is just the way I, I tend to do it and then mm -hmm. finger numbers are really not that important until later on in piano study so I don't know. That's just my unpopular opinion, but they're kind of abstract and not necessary. So, right. You did mention technique, which is another topic I'd like to touch base on. Many neurodivergent students experience motor difficulties, and I'm interested if any of these motor difficulties might affect piano technique. For instance, I have one student with special needs who has a really hard time keeping all of his fingers above the piano as opposed to only the finger that's playing at any given moment. Can some of the motor difficulties these students experience hinder their ability to play piano with what we would consider to be traditionally proper technique? And if so, what should be done about it? Yeah. So for better or worse, I don't really think too much about, I'm not like ultimately concerned with, is this the best possible piano technique with, hmm. with many of my students? I'm concerned with, are they able to play what they want to play? And is it fun and like not super horrible and tiresome for them? So there are a lot of students that are so hungry to play that you can start working on that proper kind of proper quote technique uh -huh. with them, even if they have motor challenges. But again, from the beginning, I would say like, don't worry too much about it. Um, I, that's good advice. Yeah, really don't. It's okay. And I have had students who I've been teaching for three, four, five, six years who we just started to work on. Okay. Now you like, you know what piano is about. You like it. You're in it. Let's start working on technique and that's fine. <laughs> so, um, I'll, I'll also say that there, there are varying opinions on this, but I tend to use a fair amount of hand under hand support. So, and again, only with consent of the student and the parent, um, if the student can't give you their, their verbal consent, then, then they're like implicit consent. But 
when students are really interested in piano and they want to be playing songs, it's okay to touch the underside of their hand and help them, like, for example, not play the, quote, wrong note so that they can learn how to play the right note and things like that. And so, like, for a student who you're describing, whose finger is, like, who doesn't keep his other fingers over the keys yeah. when just one finger is on, I might put my hand under his hand if he was okay with it and kind of, like, you know, flap out his fingers a little bit over the keys and say, okay, now try it and just help him, like, from there. I've had some students who I did that for a couple weeks and they just, oh, I get it now. <laughs> I have never tried that. I'm yeah, not, so I'm not sure about it with the COVID regulations, but that, in theory, yeah, that sounds yeah. like a great idea. I have not tried that with that student. That's a yeah. good suggestion under the hand. Um, okay, so do, an you, option. Yeah. Yeah. do you have any other suggestions or topics you'd like to talk about with our audience regarding working with neurodiverse students? Yes, I think you've already brought this up, but I have to go in my mini soapbox about it, and that is presumed competence. <laughs> so, um, so presuming competence is. Not just like this happy-go-lucky, like, let's all hold hands and pretend like there's nothing wrong kind of thing that I say. It's more like a, a perspective when you're teaching these students. So don't take their behaviors and their speech abilities and their motor skills at face value. Um, motor skills are not related to intelligence. Neither is the ability to produce speech. So students are often, like, have normal or above-average intelligence, but have really difficult a really difficult time with motor skills. Can you imagine being like really smart, but everybody looks at you and looks at the way you move and the way you approximate speech and they talk to you like you're a baby when you're like 12 years right. old, you know? So it, this presuming competence is really just, there's a lot that goes into it, but the main advice is talk to students in an age appropriate way, no matter what yeah. age they are, and then expect that they understand you. I think we're, as teachers, we're always looking for them to not understand <laughs> and so if you look at them, it, you speak in an age appropriate way, you deliver developmentally appropriate information, they probably do understand you, even if they're not able to express that to you in a way that you understand. So presume competence, you might be the only person in their life that doesn't talk down to them or use baby talk. And that will only affect their piano learning, but also their self-esteem and their confidence and just their enjoyment of life. I would also add another, uh, you mentioned uh, speak to them in an age appropriate manner. Another piece of advice that I've seen you give in the past is also to use age appropriate material. I think yeah. there can be a temptation if you have like an adult uh, autistic student to mm -hmm. want to use an elementary method that has like graphics and yeah. it's designed for a little kid, but the adult can feel that that's condescending. And right. how do you solve that to an extent with your um, uh, milestone method and that it's, although it's geared to these learners, it's not babyish. Right. So I try my best to make all the illustrations not babyish and the lyrics, but also there's an, there's a separate version within each book, a version two that has no illustrations and no lyrics. So if you're an adult student that just wants to get down to business, you can do that. Um, yeah. So I also, I don't want to speak for all people and say that, you know, no, for example, 18 year old autistic student likes, doesn't like happy uh, twinkle, twinkle little star. Okay. Maybe they do, but also maybe that's all they've been exposed to in their whole life. Cause their parents are, or someone their well-meaning teachers are like, Oh, they love twinkle, twinkle little star. We'll play it every day. And they've never gotten a chance to be exposed to other kinds of music. So yeah, I would say as much as you can go with age appropriate material. And if you ever have to, for some reason, present a song or an activity that seems kind of young for them, you can say that. I say that all the time to my teen students. If, you know, some illustration comes up in a book, I'm like, oh, man, hang in there with me. I know this is super babyish, but just I want to show you this one thing and then we'll move on so that I think they appreciate it. <laughs> I certainly would if I was them. And I have had students tell me, I hate this. It looks like baby stuff. So 
even if they're not saying it to you, they might be thinking it. <laughs> That's great advice. Thank you. Uh, finally, before we close, can you give our listeners a sense of both what you're up to now and how our listeners can learn more about you and all the different resources that you offer for piano teachers? Yeah. So, so the biggest thing that's I'm pouring my soul and time into right now is my 11 week course for piano teachers, which just launched this week, actually. I know this is early March. So um, this is the last round that I'm hosting as a live version where I release only one module each week. And then I we, we meet for a grouply, a grouply, a weekly group call. Um, but after this round, probably around June 2021, I'll be releasing the course as a self-paced version that teachers can go through on their own. So hopefully that makes it more accessible for teachers who don't necessarily want to commit to 11 weeks of group calls, <laughs> but still want the information. So I've also got um, tons of helpful free content on social media. If you want to follow me at Notable Piano on Instagram um, or Notable Music Teaching on Facebook. And I've got an email list. You can come over to the website, NotablePiano.com and say hello. I'm trying to help you in, in whatever way you want to be helped, whether it's just little tidbits of information or an all out course. Yeah, and that includes a really helpful, I believe you recently offered a 45-minute kind of free video tutorial that goes through a lot of these topics. Mm -hmm. I watched it prior to this interview, and it's free, and it comes comes with a very helpful attached PDF that has a lot of great information about a lot of what you were talking about today. Yeah, thanks for reminding me about that. (laughs) That's actually at notablepiano.com slash free dash training if you're interested. So go ahead and grab that. Excellent. Well, I really um, admire all of the work that you're doing. I think um, it's evidenced by the fact that I read that you grew your studio from four to 50 students plus a waiting list just through word of mouth alone. So that's showing that something you're doing is working. So congratulations on all of your success and for providing so many positive experiences for these students whose musical abilities may have otherwise gone unnoticed or unexplored had it not been for you. So thanks again for everything you do and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. And thanks to all of you for listening to All Keyed Up Creative Conversations for today's piano teachers. I'll see you next time.